You're listening to the N2K Space Network. Hi, I'm Maria Varmazes, host of the T-Minus Space Daily Podcast, and you're listening to T-Minus Overview. In this program, we'll feature some of the conversations from our daily podcast with the people who are forging the path in the new space era, from industry leaders, technology experts and pioneers, to educators, policymakers, research organizations, and more. And you know, since we launched the T-Minus Space Daily podcast back in April, a common theme has emerged in the space industry. Namely, space has a workforce problem and hasn't really figured out a way to fix it yet. It is a complex issue and questions abound here. For example, the STEM movement promoting science, technology, engineering, and math has grown in popularity, but is STEM enough for growing the workforce in aerospace? And what does STEM educational outreach actually look like in aerospace? And what kinds of training can students get access to? Well, for some unique perspectives on all this and much more, the first person we'll hear from is Christina Korb, the astronaut wrangler, about a different kind of outreach and leading people into space through the arts. The second guest you'll hear from is Princeton University research engineer and educator Mike Galvin about his proposals to create kits for schools to study space-based research. And our third guest is Michelle Lucas, CEO of Higher Orbits, a nonprofit that promotes opportunities for youth across the country. Christina Corp is known as the Astronaut Wrangler, an amazing title that she owns after managing Buzz Aldrin. She came into the space industry from an entertainment background and shares with us how that shaped her foundation called Space for a Better World. Well, I think, you know, for people who don't know me, it's helpful to know that I came from the, the music world. And I just kind of had this crazy rock star lifestyle of singing in front of 200,000 people um, in, in live concerts and, and also recording. And that was my life. And then I, I, I wanted a quiet, boring life for a little while because I had, had this total rock star lifestyle. And I went to work for Buzz Aldrin. I answered an ad in The Hollywood Reporter. And oh. it, it was one of these things where I had no idea what was going on in space. I just was looking for a job that I thought was going to be a good, more quiet, simple job compared to what I had been doing. And, <laughs> and I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And um, it opened me up into this whole world of space and hanging out with Apollo astronauts. And yeah, so it's, it's not a conventional like avenue to space. As the 40th anniversary of Apollo 11 came up, because I started with him in January of 2008, and 2009 was the 40th anniversary of Apollo 11. And things really started ramping up to celebrate that anniversary. And that's when I started thinking, well, maybe I have an opportunity here to bring my entertainment skills to try to 
amplify his vision, but in a way that people like me could understand it. And so that's kind of what has led me down this path now in my own, you know, new mission, so to speak, of what I, how I married that, the, the entertainment side of me along with the, the, the space world now. That is a fascinating story. And I, I, I think it's so important that people understand that every, every path into a career does not have to be this linear thing, that no experience is ever wasted and we can bring our full selves to the table. And I, I love that, that you've got Space for a Better World, your foundation, where you're doing that. You're bringing all these facets of your experience together. Can you talk a little bit about what your foundation is, what it does? Yeah. So I came up with the tagline of connecting the space curious to the space serious because I came from the world of the space curious, but then I got, um, then I entered this world of the deep space serious of dealing with, you know, guys who walked on the moon, but also space agencies and heads of aerospace companies and just really major decision makers in space. And so and then aside from that, always hearing moon landing memories, being with guys who walked on the moon, I became the keeper of the moon landing memories. I just heard thousands of them, you know, <laughs> and realizing, wow, I have a responsibility here. Um, you know, I, I'm in a unique position of of hearing these stories that for the guys was just their reality. But then I realized, wow, this is people pouring out their hearts and souls about what the first moon landing especially meant to them and how it kind of lit this spark within them of believing they could do something that they didn't think was possible for themselves before. So that's really what kind of um, has led me to Space for a Better World. So it's it's a combination of doing outreach to inspire young people and people from a lot of different backgrounds to believe that there's a place for them in space. And, and I'm living proof of that, you know, having come from where I came from. But then also realizing there's, I, I have a uh, maybe a an opportunity to educate even people who are big decision makers for companies or even in countries, you know, that's something that I realized when I went to the world economic forum in 2019. And again, in 2020, just before the pandemic is how little a lot of those decision makers who say they want to save our planet know is at their disposal through space. Like that there are tools here that are really valuable to help some of the world's uh, biggest uh, problems and they, I really feel that space is the place for those solutions. So that's what I'm trying to do is help educate people and create content and do outreach and speak about it whenever I have a chance. And I feel like historically we've done, those of us who are enthusiasts or work in the industry in, in any capacity, we haven't done a great job at sort of selling, <laughs> for lack of a better term, why going to space matters. Why have we not done a, as good a job as maybe we should be doing? You know, what's interesting is we, I just was talking earlier with Nicole Stott, um, the NASA astronaut who I work closely with and is a major partner and purpose with me on Space for a Better World. You know, the interesting thing about the Apollo era is they did a fantastic job of marketing um, going to the moon. Like they really got not just America, but the whole world on board with the idea of this exciting endeavor of going to the moon. And so it's just since then, I think we've you know, there hasn't been the greatest marketing and messaging um, in a way that people understand the value of what they've gotten from that. I mean, the return on investment is so beyond measure that hardly anybody's, I don't even know if anybody's ever truly done it. And we're talking thousands and thousands upon times of what we put into it has give, been given back to the world. And so, you know, what I'm trying to do through Space for a Better World is kind of show people that. So for instance, 
you know, everyone takes for granted that they have a little computer in their hand that lets them talk to anyone in the world with no delay. It's so um, ordinary now, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. people don't even understand that's what it is. I mean, that's the interesting part about it is everyone is using space technology and they just don't know that's what it is. So trying to bridge that gap, that's what I really feel like, okay, maybe me and the astronauts can help bridge that gap. Yeah, and I, I know that that is definitely an avenue to, to, to reach some folks who are maybe on, on the cusp of being like pro-space, for, <laughs> for lack of a better term. Like, I, I'm wondering, how do you reach people who are really cynical about it? Well, I think what it comes down to is everybody cares about something, right? So you have to um, figure out where you can meet them at the point that something matters to them. And so often the people who are saying, oh, why are we spending money on space? will say, oh, I'm an environmentalist or I'm worried about climate. I'm worried about these things, you know, with uh, climate change. And, and, and the ironic thing is, you know, they'll say, I just, I can't worry about space. I've got to worry about that. And I'm like, well, first of all, we live on a planet in space. And it's not this faraway place that has nothing to do with us. Space is all around us, first of all. Second of all, it's actually NASA and the European Space Agency and all the different agencies that are giving you the climate data. That's where it's coming from. It's not just some nebulous thing, you know, out in the universe. You're, we're just learning this. It is the space people who are providing that data and are working in cooperation with NOAA, the uh, National Oceanic and um, Atmospheric Association, or administration. And it's not a separate thing. That's, that's, so that, that's what I think it has to come down to is you find something that people care about. You know, I met some people uh, back in London last year who care about animals. And so then I said, well, so did you know that they're using AI with satellites in orbit that are able to track, say, like the gorillas or endangered elephants easier from space than on the ground? Because it's easier to police the poaching efforts or keep track of the animals using AI in, in orbit than it is with just people driving around on the ground. So that's where I think if you can meet them at the place about the thing that they care about and show them how space can help that particular thing. I mean, that's where I, I feel like I'm starting to get more people to understand the value or, or at least um, not be opposed to it. Our second guest is Princeton University research engineer and educator Mike Galvin. I met Mike at the Maine Space Conference, where he talked me through his work with a company called Max IQ. And Mike is developing a system that students can use to get their research onto the International Space Station. Max IQ provided a bunch of these electronic sensor kits that could integrate into small slice of bread sized satellites. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how we got our Princeton's first student satellites into orbit. We, we launched two ThinSats um, into a low Earth orbit for about a week. And these kits are kind of the, um, the easy button option to help schools get their first project into orbit. Uh, because they have spaceflight heritage, they've survived space, they've survived orbit, they're really easy to work with and click together without doing much soldering. And they provide a really nice opportunity to learn coding and software engineering. 
um, for programming readout software to read out the different sensor values that you're interested in on orbit. So what kind of uh, tests and what kind of sensors are students generally using? Like, what are they doing? Um, there's a variety of sensors. The whole ecosystem of sensors, um, but maybe the core ones are like an inertial measurement unit, mm -hmm. which is a suite of accelerometers and gyroscopes and magnetometers mm -hmm. to sort of do sensor fusion to figure out your orientation in orbit and your pointing mm -hmm. and your accelerations. Um, there's light sensors, there's UV sensors, there's IR sensors, there's imagers. There are weather sensors, so you can measure pressure drop during ascent. Um, you, that can work as an indirect um, altimeter. Um, so there's a lot of different sensors. But um, my student group is mostly mechanical engineers. So we're in the mechanical engineering department. And so we're less interested in the electronics and the coding. And we're more interested in the mechanical packaging that can package and batch these kits um, into immediately launchable form factors mm. and platforms. So we're, we're less interested in getting the chips on orbit than we are in getting our mechanics Understood. on orbit. Yeah. And we've been trying to find all different uh, reliable ways to get, you know, batched schools, like a bunch of schools into space at once for the first time. And um, one of the best ideas we had is to package these kits, in a, to batch these kits into a 1U CubeSat, which is the original CubeSat, standard size 10 centimeter by 10 centimeter by 10 centimeter cube. And we can replace the usual solar panel uh, panels with these kits um, because we're interested in ultra short missions um, on the one week time scale where they burn up within a week. They don't clutter low Earth orbit. They provide no orbital debris. But very important full end to end experience of designing uh, space qualified hardware and downlinking data from dozens of orbits in the span of a week. Proving survivability mm -hmm. in orbit, and and even operating your satellite from the ground, um, you get all of that in a week, and you have to survive a launch, which is challenging in itself. Absolutely. But we're not cluttering up low Earth orbit. We so the point of that is we don't need to be collecting a lot of power to survive a week. We yeah. can charge a big battery, and we can power all the kits for a week um, without much solar collection. So we can. Repanel the whole CubeSat with a bunch of batched school kits. Hmm. Uh, but even this is quite risky because getting a one new CubeSat to survive orbit and downlink reliably Tough. is still a crapshoot yeah, uh, yeah. these days for schools. So we started thinking about what's even simpler? What's an easier way to get all these kits in space in a real orbit so we can have a real educational space program? And it's not just a ground program. Mm -hmm. And so that's where this project fits in. Okay. We, we try to figure out what's the most reliable, frequent ride to space. And that is, at the moment, as long as we can convince Congress to keep the International Space Station in orbit for a few more years, resupply shuttles back and forth to the International Space Station is the most reliable game in town yes. for getting frequent access to low Earth orbit. And um, there are some launch and experiment integrators for the International Space Station. One of the oldest and most successful ones is NanoRacks. Mm -hmm. yep. um, NanoRacks makes these um, nanode uh, drawer units 
that can package um, what they call nano labs, which are basically just off the shelf boxes from them that provide power and data uh, links. And um, basically the, the nano labs are um, pre-qualified for launch. So as long as you can responsibly fit something into the box and seal it up, it's considered safe for launch and you're ready to go. Mm. So we took um, some of the Max IQ kits and we shrunk them down just a few millimeters to the point that they could slide um, right into the nano lab. And um, we, figured, we figured out how to stack 10 to 20 kits in one nano lab um, and break them out to route them out to power and signal lines yep. um, to the nanode. And um, we can launch them. They launch um, typically uh, with a supply mission or even with the astronaut shuttles. Um, they get a very gentle ride up to LEO. They're usually packed in like quasi bubble wrap. Um, so they don't suffer a very violent launch. Mm. Um, the nano drawer um, gets slid into these racks that they already have pre-existing, dozens of these racks already pre-existing in the ISS modules, and they can operate unattended for months at a time. Mm. Um, we are interested in just simply asking um, the astronauts to reboot them mm. every few weeks, just in case anything latches up we can make sure all the schools stay alive and get some data because we'll just reboot them a few times. And then after a few months of data collection, um, each school has their own flight computer. And so we're not using a single flight computer. Each school in the stack has their own flight computer. They have to write their own software for their own mission to read out which sensors they're interested in at the frequency that they're interested in. And while they're using off-the-shelf kits, um, they get to send a little piece of themselves to space in the fact that it's their own custom handwritten yes. software. Yep. And what we're really excited about, that another angle of the ISS um, platform is after a few months of data collection, we can actually retrieve the hardware. It can come back down on one of the astronaut shuttles and we can send the kits back to the different schools Our third guest today is Michelle Lucas, CEO of education nonprofit group, Higher Orbits. And I started off by asking Michelle what led her from her career as a NASA astronaut trainer to starting her foundation. Yeah, so the you think about life is that sometimes these journeys take you in uh, directions you never expected. And full disclosure, I always wanted to be an astronaut and it turns out I have a medical condition, kidney stones, yay! Um, that preclude me from being a NASA astronaut. And so while I enjoy training astronauts and they are still my friends and, and I love the technical aspects still, I wanted to be able to give back. You know, I was the kiddo who got to go to space camp because of a scholarship. I never could have afforded to go otherwise. And so I wanted to be able to give back to students. And I also, having worked in the industry, saw what a need we had for better workforce development. And we have a shortage of students. And... If, look, if we can't get kids excited about STEM using space, we're doing it wrong. There are two things kids are always excited about. It's space and dinosaurs. Um, I only know about one of those two, space. And so I set out and uh, started Higher Orbits. We are a 501c3 nonprofit that utilizes space flight as a way to get kids more engaged in STEM while building teamwork, leadership, and communication skills. And we run a program 
called Go for Launch that is geared at students in grades eight through 12, where they get to work with an astronaut for the entire event. Like that's a huge deal to me. I mean, I was geeked out. I can tell you all about my first meeting with astronauts. I made a total idiot of myself. You know, I mean, no shame in the game, man. I, I was so excited. And so to be able to bring an astronaut to work with students for two or three full days and then be a mentor, it's incredibly powerful. But additionally, the students compete to have their experiment designs flown to space. And we've sent 17 experiments to space already. And we'll send three more uh, in theory by the end of the year. And I say in theory because they're manifested, but we all know how rocket launch schedules go, right? Oh my goodness. That's amazing. So how long have you been uh, running higher orbits? So (laughs) started the paperwork in 2013, 14, got our status in 2015, ran our first program in 2016. Since then I've run, oh my goodness. And this is shame on me. I should know the exact number, but we've done more than 60 programs across the country impacted more than 2,000 students since then. And we bring this all around the country. My goal is to bring a space-inspired STEM event to the backyards of students all across our country. You know, on the south side of Chicago, I was very fortunate that we have the Museum of Science and Industry, um, and my mom understood the power of that and took me there. And it meant the world to me to be able to see those space exhibits there are a lot of students who don't have access to anything space-related. And yes, the internet is amazing. And the fact that you can turn on a rocket launch no matter where you are on your phone or on your iPad, that's also amazing. Uh, But there's something that is way powerful when you can get true interaction with a student that is not, there's not a screen in the way that there is a person to person, that there's actual mentorship. And that's my goal is to keep bringing it to... uh, the various corners of the universe for of our country for students. Oh my gosh, what an amazing mission. And I'm sure you have a ton of stories. So I'm going to have to ask you to pick, <laughs> pick some because I'm just like, I'm very curious about the astronaut interactions, but I'm sure there are some that are, have no astronauts involved and are like your faves. So well, yeah, you know, it, it, it's funny because... I am terrible at metrics and companies yell at me about that all the time. And I'm like, yeah, but let me tell you stories because I am a storyteller at the end of the day. And we have some great, great students. Uh, gosh, it, it is hard to pick. Well, let's, one of our students who came to us in one of our first years of the program, Abby Yonker, great, great gal, but really didn't have a lot of STEM background. Actually had, had fallen in love with the idea of laying on the grass and looking up at the stars, but never thought she could do anything with that. And in fact, I will never forget as a freshman in high school, I asked her, so Abby, like, you know, what are you interested in doing perhaps post, post high school? And I'm, I always, I don't like to say exactly, what is it exactly you want to do? Because you know what? It's okay for them to change and evolve and, and pivot. She said, well, you know, I don't know. I was thinking maybe I'd be a professional lacrosse player. And in my head, never wanting to, of course, squash anybody's thoughts and dreams, thinking, wow, like I didn't know that was a thing for guys. Nevertheless, you know, a gal being a professional lacrosse player. Okay, cool. You know, she was at the program. She was absolutely fantastic. She was part of the winning team from that event. And how our events work is we pick uh, winners from individual, winning teams from individual events, and then they compete against each other in a series and generally overall series flies, has their experiment fly to space. There are some, every once in a while, there's little differences, but that's that. Um, That's in general how it works. Well, Abby was part of that event winning team and then became part of the series winning team who had their experiment flown to space on Orbital ATK's rocket, now Northrop Grumman. And she 
went from being terrified of speaking in public to being an amazing speaker on the press conference of what's on board for the International Space Station prior to the launch. She is now entering her senior year. I'm really bad at keeping track of years. Senior year in aerospace engineering. And she did internships this year and last year at additive manufacturing. And so she went from a kiddo who didn't know how she could ever be part of the space industry to not only studying it, but being a part of it through internship. And so, uh, you know, that is one of the many space kids that I am so lucky to work with. I, my mom jokes, I don't have any children and uh, having children was never part of my grandmaster plan, but I now have 2000 space kids that call me space mom. And uh, so <laughs> I, I am the proud parent. So I can gush for ages. 2000 children. <laughs> you know what? That is a humongous impact. Getting kids who maybe don't know how they can get into STEM is such a tricky problem, challenge. I would love to know your thoughts because, I mean, I feel like a lot of people are trying to crack that nut, so to speak. So what are, what are your thoughts on that? It is a challenge. And it's a challenge not just in the aerospace industry. Um, the Department of Labor suggests that we are going to have, you know, more than a million jobs shortage because of the incredible rate at which we are increasing the need for STEM jobs. In our industry, the space industry, things are evolving so rapidly Jobs that exist today didn't exist five years ago. And I don't just mean an body count. I mean in concept and what the job actually does. And so it is a challenge to keep up with those needs. And one of my big foot stomp things lately, um, because I now see it from a very different side of the world, is we've got to quit going to the same well. They go to the same institutions of higher education. They go to the same programs. I mean, don't get me wrong. Programs like, actually, I'm not going to name any. We're going to say there are programs out there that are definitely aimed at students who are already geeked out about STEM. And that's awesome. I want them to have those opportunities. The thing is, we already have those kids, right? They're already going to study STEM. So how do we get the kids who aren't already engaged, geeked out, so super excited? And that is one of our targets. About half our kids come in STEM interested. The other half are like, I don't know, STEM kind of sucks, but... <laughs> I would hang out with an astronaut for a couple of days. And then we bring them in and we show them that maybe it's not the narrow field that they think it is, that there are a whole lot more opportunities and options that exist. And yes, we are STEM focused, but we focus also a lot on teamwork, leadership, and communication. Additionally, we do uh, bring up that there are needs for jobs like space lawyers and ethics and, and things of that nature. So I think the challenge is showing students that it's perhaps more than they realize, and it's going to different wells. It's trying to find these students who are not necessarily part of the usual pipeline, meeting students where they are. And that is not just from a diversity terms, it's from a geographic terms, right? Um, and from a school terms, let's, you know, there are some kids at community colleges that are awesome rock stars that are being overlooked because, well, we go to the, you know, top 10 schools and recruit from there. And not to say that we should stop doing that. It's not an or, it has to be an and. We'll be visiting this topic again soon to speak to other organizations developing programs to attract people of different backgrounds and interests into the space workforce. And if you're interested in hearing more about the space industry, join me every day for T-Minus Space Daily. It's available on all major podcast platforms. You can also find more at space.n2k.com. 
We'd love to know what you think of this show. And you can email us at space at n2k.com. Your feedback ensures that we deliver the information that keeps you a step ahead in the rapidly changing space industry. This episode was produced by Alice Carruth, mixing by Elliot Peltzman and Trey Hester, with original music and sound design by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive producer is Brandon Karp. And I'm Maria Varmazes. Thanks so much for listening.